We were scared to death. We had a permit to march. I think it was down 4th Street. And we were terrified of being out there alone, vulnerable, proclaiming that we were lesbian and gay. But we did it. And, and we saw people on the sidewalk who we knew were gay and lesbian, but who were terrified of coming into the parade and walked along beside us. And I understand that. It's just that it was very hard, very difficult to be out. Hi, everybody. I'm Janice Bear. I'm the host for today's episode of Voting Now, Turning Rights into Reality. In celebration of Women's History Month, we bring you today Kathleen Sadat, who is someone who has worked to lift the voices of disenfranchised Oregonians for the past 45 years. The democratic process of voting is not the only way to have your voice heard or to affect change. When our institutions and our culture make people feel silent, that is just as disenfranchising as voter suppression. The ability to be heard is vital to our democracy. Exercising your voice is as important as exercising your vote. Kathleen Sadat has some experience with overcoming a political culture aimed at silencing her, and she has some advice about what we can do to be heard effectively in the face of indifference or even hostility. She was born in St. Louis, Missouri, spent some time in Nashville and Chicago before she came to Oregon in 1970 to attend Reed College, where she obtained a psychology degree. She has worked on inclusion and equity issues throughout her career in public service. She's a civil rights advocate for LGBTQ, the women's movement, people of color, and the economically disadvantaged. She was awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award from Portland Human Rights Commission. And most recently, she's collaborated with Pink Martini on an album. In 2018, she put out her own album entitled Love for Sale. She has been called the social conscience of Oregon, and she is someone we know to be very skilled in the use of, quote, velvet and steel, which I think would be a great name for her next album. (laughs) (laughs) That's quite an introduction. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me today. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you. I think you have so much to teach us uh, in these times of difficult political discourse that we're having. Um, You've definitely been successful in reaching across into arenas where people don't necessarily want to hear what you have to say, but you end up having conversations, effective conversations. Before we get into some really meaty issues about how to do that, I want you to tell the audience about your experience with Portland Pride Parade when it got its start in the early 70s. Well, I belong to a group called uh, Radical Women, and we were organizing to change the world, as most radicals see themselves doing. And um, we came together with some other people uh, to talk about the time to be visible in the world, to make a difference by being visible, by proclaiming our status, by saying loudly who we were. We were scared to death. We had a permit to march. I think it was down 4th Street. And we were terrified of being out there alone, vulnerable, you know, no shields, walking along, proclaiming that we were lesbian and gay. But we did it. And, And we saw people on the sidewalk who we knew were gay and lesbian, but who were terrified of coming into the parade. And walked 
along beside us up parallel, but would not join the parade. And I understand that. I, I didn't fault anybody for that. It's just that it was very hard, very difficult to be out, to say, this is who I am. You're afraid of losing your job, uh, your friends, your church, your family, your community. And so it was a pretty risky thing to do. I can remember uh, how I, my, my stomach was in a knot walking along and, uh, you know, doing the chants and, and going down to the waterfront. Not long after, the parade got bigger and bigger. And some years later, I went down and when it was covering the whole waterfront with all the booths and activities going on. And I just looked around and said, well, this is what this is what we did together. This is this is kind of amazing. You said you remembered feeling the knot in your stomach, and that is something that um, a lot of people experience, and they don't take the second step. They feel that knot, and they sit back down. When I was a little kid, maybe seven or eight, my dad would say to me, would you go upstairs and get such and such, you know, my socks or my pen or, and I would say, daddy, it's dark because it'd be evening and lights weren't on. And he'd say, yes, it is. <laughs> and he wouldn't say anything else. <laughs> the expectation was that I'd be able to do that, that I was afraid of. And over and over again, I learned and was taught that because you're afraid doesn't mean you shouldn't do the thing you believe in or that you think is right. I don't mean being foolish about it, but I do mean giving some consideration to what you believe in and let, let that drive you instead of the emotional, the predictable emotional reaction of fear. I don't know that anybody can take on changing the world without being afraid. And there are lots of people who do work to change the world. And somewhere in there, I think there's always that feeling of being vulnerable to somebody else's hatred or spitefulness or uh, being unkind. You were faced with some hostility and unkindness when in 1992, Oregon put out a ballot measure, ballot measure nine, a proposed amendment to the constitution. Can you tell our audience what that proposal was intended to do and and uh, what you did in response to that. The ballot measure was intended to disenfranchise all lesbian and gay people, but also to restrict the movement of people who were friends of lesbian and gay people, saying that an affiliation could remove you from your job. This is, um, this is in fact, legally building a second-class citizen, making se second-class citizens out of human beings that are Americans. My response was looking at the ballot measure and saying, hmm, this is a step toward fascism. That was my first response. And a friend had called me and invited me down to California, and I was talking to her, and I said, I can't come right now. I can't leave here. This is, this is too important. It was also the time I decided to come out in a whole nother way and came out on the cover of Just Out magazine, the gay and lesbian magazine had my picture taken in front of City Hall and began to get very vocal and very active in opposing the ballot measure. We went to, I think it was Eugene and had a big community meeting. And there several of us people of color were elected to or chosen to be 
members of the steering committee that would fight this ballot measure. Was this a grassroots measure or did you? Yes. Well, that's the, the organizing was grassroots. It started out there. Yes, it started out very much. People chose us, because, I believe, because they wanted to see people of color in leadership. They wanted to see people that they trusted. Uh, they didn't know if we had the skills. They didn't know if we had the knowledge or the background. They just wanted the voice there. Over time, that changed. It became very difficult to stay within the group, within the steering committee. It became difficult for me. I know a couple of other people left because they found it difficult, uh, people of color. And it was, it was more cultural conflict and not realized bigotry. When I say not realized, I don't think anybody intended to be bigoted, but they were. And calling it to the forefront didn't help. But one of the big dilemmas, ethical dilemmas I had in my life was to stay and support a movement that I knew needed some real education or to go and by going, because I was so publicly known, hinder or you know impair the ability of that group to move forward. And I stayed. And it, so it was painful both inside the group and outside the group. I went home lots of nights and just cried. I just cried. But I went back because I thought it was important. And it wasn't just important for me. I'm saving my life by doing this. But it was all important for all of us, not just the gay and lesbian people. It was important for all of us to understand about being people and being Americans and having some right to access all the institutions and all the privileges and things that we have as Americans. It's one thing to step up for the gay and lesbian issue. That's incredibly difficult and particularly, you know, I mean, the further back you go, the harder that challenge would be. Uh, but you were also faced with racial injustice and, uh, and bias. And uh, where did you find the strength? Where was the safe haven for you? And where did you get the confidence? Where, where does that come from? Because it's, it's so hard to find. I don't know where the confidence came from. I got a lot of support from people in the community. Uh, Every two or three days, I'd get a postcard, and it would say, we're watching you. We know that this is hard for you. We love you. Thank you very much. And I didn't know where that came from. It was always anonymous. And years later, I found out it was from my friend Jack. And, <laughs> you know, right now, I, I tear up just thinking about it because I would. those were treasures. They were treasures for me. They helped me. I found comfort in my friends. I found comfort in people that I could talk to about what was going on. I found support. There was a person on the board with me. When I said to him, we, we were having a, a pizza, and, and I said to him, what you saw tonight is what I call racism. And he said, explain it to me. And I explained to him, I said, it's also ageism, because I was a little older than the person who was attacking me at the time. And we went to the next meeting, and I was misquoted, and this person spoke up for me. He said, that's not what Kathleen said. I'm telling you that she didn't say that. So he just squelched it right there, which helped to clarify what was going on here, the dynamic that was being established by this person representing me, misrepresenting me, and accusing me. So I found support around me. I had to let it happen. I mean, you know, you, you 
tend to get to that place where you want to close down and don't have anybody around you because they may hurt you. But no, I couldn't do that. I wouldn't have survived it. But I also know that what one of the most important things to me to have learned in life is to know the limits of your power. If you know what you can and cannot do alone, then you have a strong signal on when you need to reach out and ask for help. And I knew I couldn't do this alone. What was my good fortune was the help was offered before I even had to ask. But I was, I was totally comfortable with talking about what I felt and thought, even though I was frightened of the attitudes and the possible behaviors of the people in the room. And when you're scared, you're not scared just of the attitudes. You're, you're scared of what will happen because of those attitudes. Well, when you and I talked before, you mentioned a couple of things that you think helped succeed in overcoming that um, ballot measure nine. You talked about coalition building across the state. How did you do that? Well, number one, I didn't do it. There's a lot of people who did. So we did. A lot of us did. I just happened to be very visible, very black and, and long lived. So by talking with each other, by providing support, by explaining, before I came out on the cover of, of Just Out magazine, I talked to a number of my friends saying I was going to come out and that, tell them what I expected of them that they not abandon me. These are mostly straight people, many of the black, and saying, I expect you to say, when somebody comes to you with some nasty tale about me, to say to them and remind them that I'm the same person I was two days ago when they didn't know. And I still am standing up for the same things now that I stood up for then. And they agreed. One guy actually cried. He said, I didn't know. Thank you for telling me. I didn't know you were gay. Thank you for telling me. So that's part of it. It's talking to other people. It's soliciting their support. It's also making sure that when you begin to take something on, you know who you're talking to. You know something about who they are, what they stand for, what they think. And you listen very, very carefully to what it is they want. You allow differences to happen. I was in... Uh, Boy, I can't remember which town it was. The one with the caveman outside in Southern Oregon. We were there having a people of color gathering during ballot measure nine, uh, fighting ballot measure nine, and room full of people of color, maybe 25 people, introduced ourselves. We got to the end of the introductions and there was uh, a man that said, I don't think I should be here. And I said, why not? He said, I support the Oregon Citizens Alliance. I said, please stay. He said, why? I said, because we get to live on this planet together. <laughs> I'd like to know what you think, and I want you to hear what you think. At the end of that session, he came over and he said, thank you. I said, what are you thanking me for? He said, because I thought you were only interested in being gay and lesbian, but you care about children and roads and education and schools and health care. He said, thank you. So another part of that building is showing yourself as something more than one dimensional, allowing that to happen. And that takes place when usually when you're in a dialogue with someone, and I mean a dialogue, I don't mean some where you're preaching at someone, but where you're listening and you're responding and you're finding within yourself places where you can resonate with the experience of someone else. 
So in those instances, when people have actually come together in the same room, whether it's across a conference room or at some lecture or presentation, and there's actually a dialogue and there are differences, you can make yourself known. That's part of the public awareness piece of just telling people where you stand and what you are about and who you are, and to do that in a very, very real way. But also, one of the things that I've learned from you is that it's so important to listen to the other side and and to not just sit or stand there waiting for them to finish so that you have your opportunity to say what you've been thinking about. But actually, there's a phrase that you used called listening to understand. Uh, and and that's a concept that I think is intuitive to some people, but it's also learnable. It's also something that you can write down and say, this is something I'm going to work on when someone else is talking, particularly in that environment where you know that there are political or personal differences that you're trying to work through. It's uh, vitally important that you put on the mantle of listening to understand not waiting to have your opportunity to jump into the breach and state your position, but actually to try to put yourself in the shoes of the person that is speaking with you, to listen to what they're saying. I, I just think that's so valuable. I've, I've had opportunities in litigation mediations to sit down with opponents. To my surprise, it's almost as though having your opponent recognize that you are actually hearing them is so incredibly valuable. In a litigation setting, it turned into monetary value, right? If somebody came in asking for 100000 and they sat across the table and they told you something and you actually heard it and they could feel you understanding them, that $100,000 goes down to 50000 I mean, I could actually even put a monetary value on how important this uh, principle is that you actually listen to understand. And that's a phrase that I think I got, I think I understood that intuitively throughout my work, but I did not know it was a real thing that I could talk about until you gave me that phrase, listening to understand. We're taught from an early age to argue, to take your stand and, and make your point, but we're not taught to listen to the elements of the other argument to see where we agree or may not agree or if there's some room in between for something different. Because we get yes, no. Well, what about maybe? What about something else? What about Thursday? What about another concept entering in? And we don't allow for that when we don't listen. We also don't connect with other people when we don't listen. Because that connection has to do with being able to identify with the other, which a lot of people want to avoid. And that's what's true. They want to avoid it. They don't want to connect with me. They don't want to understand that I cry at the same movies they cry at. They don't want to know that. They want to make me be different. And that gives them license to dislike or hate or ignore me. We are not taught to really, really be a part of a, of a dynamic with people outside of our own little spheres. And within the, those circles of, of influence and love that we have, we are not necessarily feeling obligated to listen to the person who is least 
like us in our own view. It's so hard to build trust across differences if differences is the primary theme of the interaction. Yes, no, as opposed to, ha, huh, what is this really about? And trust is, is built on experience anyway. It's not, it, it's more about having faith in other people when you first get to know them, believing that they are who they are and who they say they are, and they're saying what they mean. Mm -hmm. Kathleen, you and I met under odd circumstances, but I, I felt your energy when you walked in the room and I knew you were a kindred spirit uh, immediately in that very odd environment that we met in. And that was on the Portland Police Bureau Police Reform Act case that I was supervising for the U.S. Attorney's Office and we had asked you to lead the Community Oversight and Advisory Board, also known as COAB. We handed you a ticking time bomb. I, I, I see that now. It was uh, too big of an ask for any human being, but we asked you to do it. And we met many times over the course of, um, I don't know, a year or something like that um, to try to get that, um, to get that board functional, which we didn't succeed in doing. And they're trying to rehabilitate it now. That was an environment that brought all of these issues that we're talking about to the table. And it was too many people, too many issues, not enough resources. Um, but I think at the core of it, it was that there were these dramatic differences and a tremendous valley of distrust between us, not you and I, but between the community and the police bureau. Uh, I don't think that has been... Uh, fixed. I don't, I, th I think that distrust has grown deeper. And I think that's the, the foundation of a lot of the turmoil that we're seeing in Portland these days. How do we overcome that degree of distrust? Where do you start to attack that problem? Because I, I don't know. So the thing I would start with is the next time you want to do this, why do you want to do it? And let's have a long, hard conversation about what your reasons are, what your goals are, and what it is exactly you're going to do to support this effort and to make that public. Let's start there. What has happened since the uh, board dissolved, I was naive, but I also wanted to take the job because it, it involved the community. It involved people who actually were affected by the behavior of the police in trying to say something about what they wanted to have happen. That's why I wanted to do it. It was a step toward democratizing the processes of the city and policymaking. Not being able to do that and, and saying, I can't do this anymore. And I've thought about it a lot. Now it's under a more secretive or less visible effort. I don't know that they're doing anything better or worse. Maybe if you want to turn in on, on, on uh, cable TV, you'll find out. But what has to happen is something that's more of an open dialogue about what we're doing, what our reasons are, having support for it. Even now with people protesting and protesting and people say, okay, we'll do this, we'll do that. There's thoughts on the parts of individuals, but there's not enough dialogue for me. There's not enough talking about why do you want to do this? So we get a, a slogan, defund the police. That becomes the definition of what's going on that makes no sense in terms of trying to change policy. 
We also need to acknowledge that you cannot change one institution in this system without changing all the others. You cannot change the police bureau without changing other bureaus in the city. And when you do that, if you're doing it right, you will change a lot of other institutions throughout the state, perhaps some impact on the federal government. What kind of coalition would you pull together to try to address these very deep divides between the community and the city government or in any government that would be facing this kind of community discontent? Well, I think the first thing is I try to figure out why I wanted to pull them together and have something concrete. But I think I would be looking at involving the police, involving community members, some of whom have worked in poverty programs, some of whom have worked in health services, mental health services included, some of whom have worked with youth. When I say community, I don't mean just the black community. I mean various groups of people who identify as this or that and have members come and talk about what it is they really, really want. You just said the goal of having a variety of um, interest groups at the table to say what they would like to see the outcome be. That's what our topic has been throughout this whole interview is about being heard. It would take a long time and it would take a lot of work. But if you keep in mind what the goals are and don't change the goals, one of the problems with the way we do stuff you throw it up in the air every two or three years, or every three or four years with a new election and a new, a new, but the goals don't stay in place. Make the goals stay in place, no matter who's there. This is the goal. That's what democracy is supposed to be about. If it is, we are all going to be able to participate. That goal shouldn't change from year to year. That goal of having full participation on the part of Americans should not be different next year from what it is this year, if we can make that the goal. Well, I think you've hit on something, and that is that goal changes because of disenfranchisement. Because those people who are not did not participate in designing or developing that goal, when they subsequently come into power, they treat the others just as they were treated, and they push off your goal and put in their goal. When you start thinking about having everybody participate, you have to know what you mean and what you're saying. I've seen meetings disrupted by people who were not able, it wasn't their intent, but they were not able to carry out what they intended, perhaps. And that had to do with either medication or mental illness or something. So you have to talk about what you're going to do with that before the fact. You can't just say, I'm going to bring somebody in from the community who doesn't, who you can't get to respect. You have to train how people can meet with, if they haven't been used to meetings. And you have to train the people who are bureaucrats how to be in meetings with people who are not bureaucrats. I ask myself, oh, probably every couple of days, what is this fight really about? This big fight we're having in our country. What are we fighting about? And I think it comes down to power. And it comes down to power over or power to. Some of us want power to do something, to help, to lift up who we are, all of us. And some of us want power over to be able to exercise our whims and indulge ourselves in whatever fantasies we have about being important. 
And that is exactly why it's important for people to have their voices heard by voting and by involving themselves in community issues that they're concerned about, because um, that's the only way we're going to get people into elected positions who actually represent what citizens in the United States really want to have happen. And you have seen, as a consequence of having that happen in Georgia, what is happening across the states, the United States of America, where voter suppression legislation is being introduced at some horrific rate to stop people from voting. Mm -hmm. It's about the power. The power of what? How about white supremacy as the power? Absolutely. Okay, we need to say it. We need to say it. More and more of us need to say it every day. This is what this is about. We're fighting for what we say we are about. We've never been there. If we had been taught it was aspirational as opposed to absolute, perhaps we'd have different attitudes about it. But now we need to acknowledge that it's aspirational and we need to get off our butts and make it right. And so our votes are very important. Um, And I am... Really grateful to have had this conversation with you today. Uh, It's always insightful hearing your stories and hearing what you have to say. Um, Based on all the experiences that you've had, you are a treasure for Oregon and a treasure for the people of the United States. You run the gamut of all the things that we we all admire, of doing all this civil rights advocacy for decades uh, for so many disenfranchised groups, and you've made such a difference and taught so many people such fundamental principles. I don't know anything at all about your mom and dad, but they must be fantastic people to have raised this beautiful person (laughs) that they gave to Oregon. Thank you so much. This has been. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. It's been a my, my great pleasure. Thank you. I, I enjoyed it. It was yeah. fun. It was fun. <laughs> this has been an episode of Voting Now Turning Rights into Reality, a new podcast series from the Oregon chapter of the Federal Bar Association in collaboration with the Oregon Historical Society. We focus on current and historical barriers to voting. Want to find out more? Hit subscribe to check out our episodes and visit our website, voting-now.com. Celia Howes is the lead host and executive producer. Frayne Masters is our creative director. Miranda Schaefer is our producer. And Gabrielle Granillo is our senior editor. Special thanks to Fiona McCann. I'm Janice Abair. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>